take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. We're in a series in this season called Build. I will build my church, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago and what it meant and how it is that more Jesus is really the mantra of our church to see Jesus build his church and not just for LifePoint to be something that we can do, but rather we want it to be something that God does among us and through us. And as part of this, I want to explore in this series, how is it that we are God's people and that Jesus is building us as his church. And so we're looking at a number of different items in this series. Uh, Last week we talked about how, and we talked about that we want to pray, that we want to invest our lives in relationships where the Spirit of God is leading us, and that we want to engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ so they too can come to saving faith in Jesus. Well, today I want us to pick up on this because Paul gives a lot of insight in the New Testament in what it means for the church to be built. The church is a body of people. It is a people that are identified by God as his own. It's not a building. It's not a location. That's where we meet. And and, and there are many times we get that confused. But I'm, I'm striking at the essence of what the church, the body of God's people is all about and how it is that God builds his body. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, when he says this, as he writes to a young Timothy who is leading the church, he says this, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he tells us who is the church. Well, the church is the family of God. It's the people of God. So we, we have our identity established, but, but as we look at this, we also see a phrase that he uses that grants to us not only our identity, but our purpose for existence in this world. He says that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as a living expression of God's family in the world, we serve the purpose as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, these are architectural construction terms. But for us, making God's truth known by the teaching of our church and the body of doctrine that we espouse and embrace and the ministries through which we serve to meet needs in people's lives and we communicate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and also the overarching mission of our church. This is the very purpose of LifePoint's witness in the world, to make God known through our teaching, through our ministry, and ultimate through ultimately through the mission of the church. And so today, as we look at this series entitled Build, and we talk about how is it that Jesus builds his church, I want to break forth and and kind of break into a four-part mini-series over the next week that brings some definition to us specifically as a church out of our gospel message that defines our teaching, our doctrine, that defines our ministries, and that ultimately defines our mission in the world. And I want to do it and introduce it to you by this concept of pillar and buttress. Pillar and buttress. Now, pillars are a functional term. I don't know if you've thought about this. It's not a real deep thought. Uh, Lane doesn't have a lot of deep thoughts. If I have one, we'll all know it. It'll be a first, right? But pillar 
is a functional term because pillars are structures that have resting weight on them. They, they are vertical structures from the foundation that lift and hold the structure that rests upon them. So if a pillar is not holding the weight of a structure, it's just a what? It's a column. Decoration maybe, may look pretty, but it's not serving any functional purpose. But when a structure rests upon a column, it becomes a pillar because of the purpose for which it serves. And what Paul is teaching Timothy and to us is that the church is a pillar of the truth of God. And when the structure of the church, the way that God builds his church, rests upon the people of God that we hold up, that we hold up these teachings, that we hold up this ministry and this mission in the world to bear witness to the one who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, where do the pillars find their stability? On the foundation, right? And two weeks ago, we talked about our foundation is Christ and Christ alone. When we said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the foundation of the church, it's that foundational confession of Christianity, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that there is no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. And if somebody's building a church on some other foundation than Jesus Christ, get out, it's a structure that's going to crumble quickly and soon. But when we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, there are pillars that bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and raise it up in such a way that creates what I would call inhabitable or relational space for people to connect with God. And friends, it is my conviction as it is the conviction of this church and many of you individually that God wants to connect with people but people are desperate, dying, you can say, to connect with God. And so as I launch into this series, I want to talk to you about it, what it means for us to ground our teaching, our ministry, and the mission of our church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but to raise that message of hope and of glory and of goodness in the world so that many, many more people can experience Jesus in a personal relationship and know salvation from God. I want to begin with this idea as we look today at our first pillar of relationship with God. How do we raise the message of Jesus Christ, this foundation upon which our lives are grounded, so that others can come into saving faith with him? That first pillar for us, is relationship with God. And what I want you to see today is that God created you for relationship with him that shapes your whole life for his glory. God created you for relationship with him that shapes your whole life for his glory. Relationship with God begins with this understanding simply that God created you to know him. He created you for this relationship. When you were designed in the creation account, Genesis records three specific uniquenesses or distinctives about people 
where God created us differently than all other of creation. And the first one is this, that God created us in his image. The imago dei of humanity is that we are created in the image of God. And we don't know all that that means, but we know much of what that means. And what we know that that does mean is not only are there many things about us that are like God, but the overall purpose for us is for God. So to understand that you were created for a relationship with God in the image of God means that God created you specifically for a unique and distinct glory in this world and he wants that glory to come through your life for his name. The second uniqueness or distinctness of us is not only were we created in the image of God, but secondly, we were given dominion over creation. He tells Adam, exercise dominion. Here come the animals, name them, right? And, and so the, the, this command to exercise dominion was given to Adam and Eve, and it established much of our purpose for why we exist functionally in the world, that we're to exercise that dominion. The third uniqueness of our creation is not only were we created in the image of God, we were commanded to exercise dominion over creation, but also we were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to procreate. Create more glory bearers, God said. Why? Because God's intention, as the prophet Habakkuk says, is to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Do you know how much of the sea is covered by water? Not a trick question, though. It feels like it. I smell something coming here. I don't know what it is, but I don't know that I like it. He's tricking us. No, all of the sea is covered by water, is it not? That's God's intention, to multiply his glory on the earth through people. Now, do you have a picture of that? And what we're going to talk about today in relationship with God begins with this foundational understanding and conviction that God created you for a relationship with him. And through that relationship, he shapes your life to bring glory to him. Every relationship in life flows from this one relationship of life because you were created to know God as your life. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I, don't, I know that we as Christians have given plenty of excuses as to why not to become a Christian. But I'm telling you, no excuse of meaning of what you've seen a Christian be or do or say or otherwise is a reasonable or rational excuse to understand what it really means to be a Christian. Even Christians who are true Christians would tell you this, we're bad Christians. Why? Because it's not about us, it's about God. It's not about how well we do for him. It's about how perfectly he has done for us. And what I want you to understand today is that what God wants for you, irregardless of how horrifically we've demonstrated it at times, still stands in his perfect sovereign will to save those who will turn to him. God created people to multiply his glory on the earth through relationship.
with him. But we also know that Genesis 3 happened. And this gives a lot of explanation to a lot of things. As a matter of fact, it gives explanation to everything that is broken and that is wrong in the world. Sin separated us from God. Imagine this. A person, a people who were created for God. And yet because of their own nature and doing, they were eternally separated from God. You know what we say about that? That's just not right. People being separated from God is not right because that is not at the heart of God and his created intention for them. And the Bible tells us in Colossians 1 that because of sin, we live in the domain of darkness. It tells us that because of our evil deeds that we've become darkened in our thinking and and we've given ourselves over and we've taken the perfect glory of God and we've exchanged it for an imperfect glory. We've taken the one who is the perfect image of God and we've exchanged it for images made in human form and likeness. Why? Because we want to be God. That's what sin makes us want to be. But God said that will never satisfy us. And so Romans 5 says at just the right time, That's not the tick-tock of the clock. That's the arrival when something was in most desperate need. At just the right time, God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. He paid our debt, and he saves us when by faith we trust in him. Friends, I start this way today to tell you that not only should your conviction be that God created you for a relationship with him, but I want you to understand that God is serious about his desire to have a relationship with you. And he is serious about what that relationship is like. And so in a world where pluralism reigns, where people acknowledge that there are many gods and they're all equal and the same, which we do not believe. In a world where relativism rules, where people get to place themselves in the place of God and say that no authority can be spoken over me, no truth can be authoritative over me. In that context, God speaks. And here's what he wants us to know. That sin convolutes relationship with endless meanings, but God is not unclear about what it means to have a relationship with him. And I want to set that forth for us today. I want to provide four parameters by which God has given to us to understand what it means to have a relationship with God. And this first parameter that I provide to you is this, that relationship with God is revealed throughout the scriptures by the names for God. What it means to to know God is, is set forth for us in the scriptures by the names of God. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 26, it tells us, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. How did they know his name? That's exactly the point of this first parameter. Because God had revealed himself to them. And what was God revealing when he revealed his name? Well, when God revealed himself to people, 
They experienced his glory. And, and there are many ways to experience the ultimate glory of God. It might be in power. It might be in of, demonstration of strength. It might be in beauty. It, it, it can be in any measure where God is set apart from all others as glorious above all others. And so God demonstrates his glory in a number of different ways. And we'll look at one in just a moment. But when God reveals himself in this way and people encounter or experience God's glory, what God came back and did is he marked that encounter. He he marked that experience by a specific name so people could call upon that name by remembering the glory of God through his power, through his might, through his strength, or through his wisdom, or through his beauty, whatever it was, so they could call upon that name and trust in God and have that relationship with him. And so when God reveals his nature by his name, it's always to demonstrate his supreme glory. Now, now let, me, let me go back to the scriptures and give you an illustration. In Exodus chapter 3, we find a man by the name of Moses. Now, this was a long time ago, the very early days of the scripture being recorded. And, and Moses, very early on, uh, was, was not really that outstanding of a guy, though he was given a lot of privilege and favor in the scriptures. Moses was born to a Hebrew, but because of, the, uh, of the, the command of the Egyptian ruler to kill all the firstborn Hebrews, he was put in a basket by his mother and floated down the river. And lo and behold, he floated right into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh was God of the land, if you will, and his daughter was going to get what little princess of God of the land wanted, right? And what she wanted was this baby that she found in this basket, Moses was raised with all of the privilege of the whole world at that time because of who raised him. But there came a time, he was about 40 years old, when an Egyptian was beating a Hebrew. And, and he stepped in to take up for that Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian and, and the guy immediately said, who do you think you are, man? You're all high and mighty. You want to be like us, but you're not one of us. And Moses realized at that point that, that, that somewhat of his aggressiveness had overcome him and he had to flee because people were talking about him and the truth about him was going to come out. So he ran and he spent the next 40 years of his life hiding in guilt and shame from that one experience. He married a girl and began to work for her father, and he was just a shepherd. He not only ran from the land of his sin, but he ran to a place where he couldn't be discovered and lived in the wilderness as a sheep herder, as a shepherd. And that's where we find him in Exodus chapter 3. You see, Moses was getting away from everybody, but when God's after you, it's very hard to get away from him. And God found him on a mountain in the wilderness. And the way that we know God found him is Moses saw a bush burning. But there was a difference in the way this bush burned. What does the scripture say? The scripture says that the bush burned, but it did not burn up. I don't know about you, but in good redneck fashion, when I burn a fire, I want it big and dangerous. But I've never lit one that didn't burn the wood that made it that way. Right? I don't light fires that burn but do not consume. God does. And listen in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, to what he said to Moses. Because he's telling Moses, I want you 
to go to Egypt and lead my people out of their slavery and captivity. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. You see, God called Moses to lead the people out of Israel, but Moses was living and hiding in his fear and his insecurity. And you know that what that causes us to do? To wear a party hat that's got pity on it and to whine about what God wants us to do and offer excuses when he gives us the command to do it. Sound kind of common, familiar at times? Not going to stay there too long because it can get a little painful. But when Moses said, I don't think I can do this, four times he offered God excuses for why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. And every time God said, I'll take care of that. I'll be faithful to that. I'll take care of you if you will obey me. And so he went. You see, he answered his excuse every time. So he could remind Moses, and then he gave them his name. And this wasn't a nebulous name, friends. It reminded Moses of his account on the mountain, just he and God. But I'm telling you, that name was so powerful that Moses used it to move the powers of the world when God spoke and led him to. And when he led the people, before he led the Egyptian pe- or the Hebrew people out of Egypt, God used that name to move the entire empire of the world so that they could leave. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you this about Moses. He encountered God in a powerful way. And when he heard the name, I am, it meant something to him. Not just outward, but deeply and inwardly. Because he had seen the glory of God by his power and by his might. And when God reveals his power and might to you, it marks you. And the way God marks you is by his name. So that you remember who he is. God reveals himself by his names. That he might be rightly worshipped for who he is. And the glory that he beholds. You see, relationship with God, relationship in any way as we can understand it, it's established and built. How? By shared experiences. You know, a lot of people live today thinking they have a relationship because they've had a conversation with somebody over the internet, right? And in some very shallow way, that is an interaction or an experience. But friends, relationships are shared and built off of shared experiences, And and, and these shared experiences are are what God is leading us in. For every name of God that he's revealed, he did so that we might call upon his glory, his power, might, wisdom, or whatever, and that we might worship him for the demonstration of that glory. Every encounter with God that leads to worship and to obedience by faith in our life builds intimacy in that relationship with him. Why? Because we've heard him speak we've trusted him and we've seen him act and we know him to be true to what he said he would be and who he said he is and when we come to know God in that way it builds intimacy with him you know the opposite of that is true for you Christian 
that every time God speaks to you and reveals to you, no matter how great or how small you might believe that revelation to be, any encounter with God that ends in disobedience not only deters your intimacy with him, but builds another and very often a bigger barrier between you and him in that relationship. Disobedience destroys, but obedience by faith brings intimacy in that relationship with God. Well, this brings me to the second parameter of what it means to have a relationship with God, and that's simply this, that God sets forth what a relationship with, his, with Him means by what we call covenants. Covenants. Throughout history, throughout the Scripture, God makes covenants with His people for specific purposes. Now, a covenant, a covenant, blah, 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 a covenant, there it goes, a covenant is simply a promise of God that's made through the demonstration of his power and glory. And he makes that. And, and often in scripture, we see where he also brings people into that covenant for the purpose. Let me give you some illustrations. So, so uh, one of the first covenants we see from God is the covenant he made with Noah. What's the sign that he gave to remind us of his promise of the covenant he made with Noah? It's the rainbow, right? Because what did he do? He was going to destroy the whole earth, but he found a remnant to redeem. Noah was a righteous man, it says. He trusted God, and so he called Noah and his family. He built a boat, took him 120 years, and he put his whole family on it, and God redeemed them from the destruction that he brought upon the earth by the flood. And when they came out of that boat, God gave a rainbow to promise to Noah and to all those who believed in him that he would never destroy the earth again by water. That's what the rainbow means, friends. It's God's promise. It's God's covenant with Noah. A little later in Genesis chapter 12, we see a covenant that he formed with Abraham who would become the father of the Hebrew nation. And what was his covenant, what was the sign of his covenant with Abraham? He said, Abraham, it's the dead of night. Look up into the darkness and what do you see? Twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? And he said, count them, <laughs> right? Like it's just so overwhelming from the, from the immediate outset of that. You don't even try because you know you can't. And God said, for every star you can count, I'm telling you, I will multiply and compound to overwhelm you with the way I will bless you and multiply you as a people. Now, this was to a man late in life, 90 years of age, who had no children. How was he going to multiply a man of that age? You see what God's doing in demonstrating his glory here? One more covenant I'll give you as an illustration. It's the covenant that he made with Moses. And what did he do? What was the sign? What did he give Moses? But Moses went up on the mountain and he gave him what? The Ten Commandments, right? Because what God was doing is he was teaching, he was setting forth what relationship with him means for his people. You see, the covenants of the Old Testament serve a specific purpose. Not that they are all informing in and of themselves, but each of them points to the ultimate covenant that God would send in the New Testament, the new covenant that is established by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of God's promises are a maybe in Jesus. No. 
Not right now. Some other time. You know, all of those excuses we give to not fulfill immediately the promises to our children, that's not what God does to his children. All of his promises are yes in Jesus Christ and amen to his children, right? They're good. They're good. Why? Because he is God and he is faithful. And that's the covenant he made in Jesus Christ with us. Let me give you the overarching theme of every covenant that we see in Scripture because every covenant has the same purpose and demonstrates the same truths that God is faithful, that people are sinful, but that God loves and saves when we repent. Here are the three parts of every covenant of God. The first part is glory. I will be your God. And listen, friends, until this part gets right, nothing else will be right in all of life. The first part of every covenant from God is, I will be your God. The second part is, you will be my people. You will obey me because I am God and I am worthy of your worship and obedience. And number three, I will dwell among you. The presence of God with his people. I'll give you two Old Testament passages that explicitly set forth this covenant to point to the covenant that would be ultimate and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, 33 records, This is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 to 28 states much the same thing when he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God's covenants, relationship with with God always includes these three parts. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. You see, friends, relationship with God is defined by his covenants because he is teaching us who he is and how he is worthy to be worshipped. A lot of people have what they call a relationship with God, but it has nothing to do with the way that God has defined what it means to know him and to have a relationship with him. God is what I call an accessory to their life. When they need to look good, when they need sugar daddy to come through for them, and they need to have something provided that they can't quite attain, when they need to get what they need to get from God, they're happy to call upon his name. But what God is clear to teach us is this. I don't know that name. Because I've never revealed myself in that way. And I've never defined relationship with me in that way. Until you worship God for the glory of which he is worthy. As God alone. Not pluralistically that he is equal with all the other gods. Not relativistically that you are God and you can use him for your ends, your purpose and your means. But until you let God be God. Until you recognize that in Jesus Christ. You are his people, those chosen to worship him. You will not know his active presence among you. And God's ultimate covenant in Jesus Christ is like none other, friends. Like none other. It's what we call the gospel. God sent his son to save us from our sin and to make us alive with him. In the gospel, God reconciles us 
into relationship with him by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, friends, in this relationship, obedience becomes not what we do to get to God, but what we do because he and he alone is worthy of it, of all and of our highest worship. God's new covenant in Jesus through the gospel tells us, listen to me, that God is for us. Do you believe that? That, that God is for you? That God is in us? And God is with us? That's what God wants us to understand about relationship with him. The third parameter that I provide for you today brings this ever more closely to us. The New Testament teaches relationship with God as the knowledge of intimacy, to know and to be known by God. You see, the New Testament references salvation as a specific knowledge. Now, we have to be careful because it talks about knowledge as we understand it, just that intellect or the thinking that we do, but that's not the knowledge that the New Testament is speaking of when it talks about knowing God, knowing His truth, knowing salvation. No, this is a different, distinct kind of knowledge that's more comprehensive than just the mind. The knowledge of salvation, the knowledge of God, knowing God in relationship is an all-consuming, all-encompassing knowledge of Him that engages the whole of who we are to know the whole of who He is. Many people know about God, and you may be one of those today, friends, but the facts and the figures that you can cite and quote do not make you a Christian. Knowing about God is not the same as having a relationship with God. And in a culture, listen to me, in a culture that's got Christian plastered all over everything, be very careful that you know the difference. Be very careful. Because the very label that you may believe you wear may be the very lie that is deceiving you to miss it altogether. You say, you're trying to scare us? Absolutely not. I'm trying to cut through the chaos of false truths that the evil one propagates so you can know with certainty and assurance what it means to live in relationship with God. Here's how Paul describes the knowledge of salvation or relationship with God. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, he's speaking to the Galatians and he says this, you have come to know God, or rather, in other words, he's saying, or let me just explain it so it unpacks it even more deeply, or rather, he says, to be known by God. This strikes at the heart of relationship, friends. In salvation, God wants you to know him, and God wants you to know that you are known by him. Known by God means that we, we have an experience that, that, that brings certainty of relationship, and not just an 
outward experience, but an encounter with God as he has revealed himself through his names and as he has set forth in accordance to his covenants with Jesus Christ, in accordance to the truth of God. And friends, those who know they are known by God, we have an assurance that God will receive us, Matthew 7 tells us. Certainty of knowing God is not about a feeling that we conjure up from within, but rather as in any relationship, certainty of that we know God is rooted ultimately and only in the intimacy that we have with God. Intimacy with God, friends, builds within us a trust in him for us to grow and for us to mature in the very image of Jesus Christ. And intimacy is crucial for relationship. And here's why. You will only trust God as far and as much as you know him. And you can only know God as far and as much as you have experienced him, as you have encountered him by the truth of his word and the revelation of it and the spirit of God illuminating that truth within your heart and in your life. You see, knowledge of God that comes by calling on his name breeds within us a dependency upon the one who alone is faithful and who is our God and is with us. And that grows intimacy between us with him by which he is glorified and we are transformed. And you see that intimacy and relationship with God, it builds a certainty of that relationship. Just like Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end, it doesn't matter what has happened to me on the earth. And if you don't know what happened to Job, you ought to read 41 and a half chapters. Dude's got some credibility on all of us combined. He said this, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end, I'll stand with him even though I can't stand up today with him. He is glorified. We are transformed. Intimacy builds certainty of relationship with God by growing faith in God. You see, I say this, and this is so critical, because some of you believe, you're genuinely believers in Jesus, but you feel guilty when your relationship with God doesn't feel as sure as it ought to. You feel guilty when you feel like, man, I need more encouragement in this relationship. And I want you to know that what we learn about intimacy and relationship with God and being known by God makes those two things critical for us. Like water and food for the physical body. The assurance from God that comes through communion with him in his word, in prayer. And the encouragement that comes to us through the fellowship of his people are as important for us as water and food to our body. We need this, friends. We need it. That's the way God designed us. Intimacy and certainty about our relationship with God is not determined by how much we just know of or about God, but is determined by this, that we know we are known by God. The fourth parameter, and I'll be quick with this one, is that relationship with God orients all of life as God-centered. In Matthew 22, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and tries to trick him with the question. He says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this, the greatest commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. 
you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and then he cites Leviticus 19, 18. First time those two had ever been put together. But here's what Jesus is telling us in the midst of this. His point is that when these commandments are our first priority, it demonstrates a life that is centered on God. And a God-centered life is reflected in how we love God first in all things, seek first the kingdom of God, and how we love others because of our love for God that is within us. Jesus says this, when God is truly known, when he is truly loved, and when he is truly worshipped, we will center our whole life on him and all-consuming love. Friends, anything in your life that does not produce an increasing and an expanding love for God and from or for others obstructs your life from being God-centered in its orientation. For a God-centered life sets Jesus as your first priority in order to grow an all-consuming love for Him. And that means you are a worshiper of God in relationship with Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. God created you for a relationship that shapes your whole life for his glory. And as I conclude today, I want to give you one more statement that I think is helpful. Relationship with God is about this one thing. That you believe in Jesus to receive eternal life so that all of life is centered on him. Have you repented of your sins Put your faith in Jesus to receive the life that only God can give in him. If not, today I want to give you the invitation and the opportunity to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, today by your spirit, would you move powerfully in this room in the hearts and the lives of each one here. And God, for those who are here today that do not know you in a personal relationship, I pray that today they will put their trust in Jesus, turn from themselves, and receive eternal life. And Lord, those today that know you, may we take stock in our life today and make sure that every part of it is centered on the love that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and respond to the Lord together.